one of the attributes that I try to exude as a leader is love of my people. And I use the word love very deliberately because I want them to know that there are attributes of love that is hard. Good afternoon and welcome to the Polaris Hall Podcast. My name is C1C Maya Mandy. I'm here with my co-host C2C Margaret Meehan and our special guest with us today, Colonel Bloker, um, A10 pilot and now works at JVLM in Washington State. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To start us out, can you give us a quick elevator pitch of how you got here today? Yes. So, well, let me answer that two ways. How I got here today, um, uh, because you asked and because I'm really passionate about giving back to the next generation. And really, I love the academy. It's, it's where I'm from. I'm a graduate from here. My wife's a graduate from here. My son attends here. It's a place that I love. Um, and so um, when, whenever the academy asks me to come and do anything, the answer is always yes. Because I just love um, you know, pouring into and, and trying to, to help cadets reach their full potential and become the best lieutenants they possibly can. Um, so that's that. But how did I get here in the Air Force? I have had a rather non-standard um, but awesome career. Um, so the way I describe it is I've spent about a third of my time flying, uh, a third of my time doing um, JTACRI, being a tactical air control party leader, um, and about a third of my time doing weird stuff, um, which has been really fun. Um, and I'll talk to you about probably some of that along the way. Uh, but the flying side, so uh, I'm an A-10 pilot by trade. Um, I um, got to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. I was also a NGEPT IFF, Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals uh, instructor pilot. Um, so that's kind of the flying side. Um, I, I got into um, JTACRI in the initial push into Baghdad in 2003, so Joint Terminal Attack Control. Um, I was uh, a, a qualified ground controller, so basically it's the guy on the other end of the radio. Uh, and so A-10 is a close air support platform, um, and uh, I got to be both flying it, and then I also got to be the ground forward air controller that's on the ground controlling it. Uh, both in combat and in peacetime. So um, that was mainly in leadership. So I did, I was, that's where I did my um, Air Support Operations Squadron Command. And where I sit right now is Air Support Operations Group Command at JBLM, where I lead basically all of the tactical air control party members in the entire Indo-Pacific, outside of Korea. Um, the other kind of weird stuff that I've done along the way, um, let's see, so I was an Olmsted Scholar. So I speak Hungarian. That's like the little known fact that I tell people in the secret language that my wife and I can, can talk in that our kids can't understand. Um, and I got to spend a couple years over in Hungary, got my master's in international relations. Um, I also uh, have had some really unique uh, staff experiences. So I was a uh, staff officer at NATO, uh, worked at Joint Force Command Brunson in the Netherlands. Um, I was also, uh, I, was, I put, took off the uniform for a year and worked at a think tank, the, it's called the Atlantic Council in downtown DC, got to do some research and got to do this really cool trip to, to China. Uh, that was a lot of fun, learn about artificial intelligence and how we could or could not work with China. Um, and then uh, most recently prior to this current job, I was the military assistant to the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Um, and he is the third highest ranking civilian in the Department of Defense. And that was really, really interesting to see how the National Security Council works, how you know presidential level decisions are made, as well as be involved in the civilian side of DOD strategic policy making. So that's kind of the career in a nutshell. Um, it's been wild. Uh, I describe my life as high highs and low lows. I've had some really, really amazing experiences and I've had some uh, epic uh, failures and really, really hard times as well. Um, but I think we'll get to some of those along the way.
Well, we're happy to have you here today, sir. Thanks. To start us off, so with all these various and diverse assignments, which one was your hardest and why? Ooh, hardest. Um, okay, so hardest assignment, like if I just categorize it that way, was probably command. Um, so squadron command. I was the squadron commander of the 13th Air Support Operations Squadron, which is actually here in Colorado Springs on Fort Carson. Um, and um, I didn't know it when I was hired to be the squadron commander, but I was uh, hired to take over a failing squadron. And so the, um, the commander had gotten in some trouble. They, um, they let him finish out his time. But when I arrived, literally, I had been in the seat for less than a month and we got a pop um, readiness inspection and we failed epically. We, they basically said, we want you to take your entire combat formation and get ready and go to war. And we couldn't find our stuff and we didn't know what our qualifications were. And we were, we were just not ready if we were given an urgent order to go generate combat power and get into the fight that we couldn't do it quickly. And we didn't really know, we didn't have the right trackers in place. We just weren't ready. Um, it's actually a lot about what the secretary is talking about right now with readiness. Um, and stepping into that role and figuring out, okay, how do I change a culture that has been very focused on being lethal, but not being ready. Um, and trying to really, with a, a predecessor that hadn't upheld standards, it's, it was, the challenge was going in and saying, here's the standard, here's the expectation. I expect you, everything from just how you're gonna carry yourself, um, to how you're going to have relationships and utilize the chain of command, to how you're going to manage your program, whether that's just having a tracker to know that everybody has done a CBT even, um, all the way down to you know accountability of equipment, accountability of, of training, um, and it was setting a standard and then upholding a standard. And it had to start with me, like I had to uphold the standard. I had to be the example um, and ask my leadership to come alongside me and say, I need you to hold up that standard. Um, and whether it was in the, in the training you did, the hours you worked, um, what you said is your priorities, um, and we had to turn the ship around. And, and honestly, that's, I mean, it's a, it's a great book actually that I'd recommend to my friends, um, is going in and completely changing a culture to one where individuals would hold their peers accountable and say, no, I'm working hard and I expect you to work hard alongside me. Um, I, the, the standard is not good enough. The standard is not, I'm gonna knock off a few minutes early because I just, I'm done. Um, the standard is, no, I'm gonna get after the hardest, the best, and whether that is on the you know operating um, and, and operations when I'm you know on the range and I'm calling in airstrikes, or whether that is in the flight room and I am writing a performance report that I am going to put my all into all of them. Um, and we really we shifted the culture, and about a year after that we got completely reinspected um, and passed with flying colors, and we're able to generate a lot of combat power. And what we found was. And I really think this is true and applicable far outside of that, is that when you, when you uphold standards, when you say to somebody, hey, here is, here's the minimum, but the minimum is not good enough. Here is what I want you to strive for. I want you to strive for excellence, right? It's one of our core values. I want you to strive for excellence. And when you exemplify that, and when that's the standard you hold everyone else to, you actually find that you start off with grumbling, where it's the, ah, oh, now they expect us to wear our uniform right, they expect us to work hard, they expect us to be at work, they expect us to you know, plan missions and brief people, and I don't just you know, figure it out as I go. But that you get some initial grumbling, but then you immediately get people to say, no, I actually like this. 
Like I want to be held to a high standard because then all of a sudden I'm doing really challenging but really rewarding and fulfilling training. And you see the whole organization get behind it and really start to grow and get better. Um, and it was, it was awesome to see. So that was my hardest assignment. I've had, I've had some other hard experiences, whether it was combat experiences or uh, you know pieces, parts, that a couple different uh, things I've done in my career, but that was the hardest assignment. Sir, that reminded me, we did a podcast with someone last year with Dr. Richard B. Wright, and he works in the writing center here, so he focused a lot on technical writing, and he has this saying, excellence will be tolerated. And he applies that to writing specifically, like excellence is the bare minimum, but he talked about how it applies to like everyone's lives, all aspects of life. It just seemed like a lot of parallels there. Absolutely. I, you know, it's, it's funny. When I was here as a cadet, um, we had, at the time, they took one of the core values per year and they would, um, they basically focus on that. It was like the focused, and, and all the speeches, all the lecture series, all the, would focus on one. And so you, you got like one, but they only had three, so you were here for four years and so you got one twice. But uh, so you feel like you got way too much one of them. But everybody talked about that. But what I found was, is that my time as, as a cadet and listening to those, um, one, right, like you hear other people's stories and you're like, that's cool, I wanna do that. But, but two, you start to realize that the core values aren't something that somebody else does and somebody preaches at you and somebody tells you to do. It's something that you start to learn and internalize and you start to where it's like, nobody else is telling me to be excellent. I'm being excellent because I want to be excellent. Nobody is telling me to serve. Nobody is telling me to have integrity. It's something that internally I want to be, I want to do. Um, and that shift for me, like that for me was a, a huge change. And, it, and for me, it took a full four years to really learn it across my time at the academy. But it was, I think it really set me up for success as, a, as an officer. Yes, sir. I think that that's something that we try and, and work on specifically within the character and honor program, like the work that Maya and I do about how can we get people to want to be part of this? How can we get people to do this because they actually believe in it? But it, it sounds like not only did your, your time here shape your perspective, um, being an officer, but also specifically you talked about squadron command. Um, were there any other specific instances in your career that, that you can think of that, that had a significant impact on your character or leadership style? Oh, absolutely. Um, so let me talk about one. And, and this is just kind of kind of be a little bit of story time, um, but uh, it was wildly interesting and so rewarding. So I talked about my last assignment prior to the one that I was in was the military assistant to the undersecretary for policy, highest level of DOD, right? Like I'm in there with four-star generals and civilians that outrank four-star generals. We are doing liaison with the White House, like high-level stuff. I was there from uh, 20... 21, excuse me, 2020 to 2022. Um, and in that time, if you know your history, we had our retrograde from Afghanistan. Um, we had the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so some serious world level events and responses to it. So I want to tell you about Ukraine um, and my experience with that. So I was working in the undersecretary's office, um, military assistant sitting there um, and one of the things you get to do is you get to read the highest level intel. You get read in into all the programs. And so I was reading and seeing all of the most detailed intel um, and, and watching as we were working to declassify things and share it with our partners and allies to show Russia's coming across the line. This is gonna happen. Um, and simultaneous to that, I would go home and every morning I would wake up 
and my social media feed because I happened to be from my time in Hungary. We had befriended some missionaries that had been in Hungary at the time that were um, Ukrainian and then living in Kiev um, and friended them on Facebook. And so I got to spend every, every morning when I would wake up, the first thing I'd do is check their social media feed because what you saw in their social media feed was fear. You saw a, but a, a level of somewhat belief, but a, a level of somewhat unbelief that could this really happen? Could Russia really come across? And then I'd go into work and then I'd read the intel and I'd be like, oh man, they're coming, man. Um, and just a, a level of concern associated with that. Um, I, was, I was really, when that was happening, so this was in February of 2022, I was in my last few days in working in that front office. I was about to move from being a military assistant to actually into policy. Um, and I was gonna go work on a Indo-Pacific focused region um, because I was going off to be the commander in the Indo-Pacific. So I was doing, hey, can I spend a few months really focused on that area? Um, and I was leaving one night from work. And when I say leaving from work, it was like 9 p.m. is when I was leaving. Um, and I, I walk out and the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia and Ukraine, a lady named Laura Cooper, she's a civilian four-star equivalent, um, and she's walking into the office to have a conversation with my boss, who at 9 p.m. still had not left. Things were tense. Um, and I ran into Laura and she looks at me and she's like, would you come work for me? And I'm like, wait, wait, what? She's like, I know that you're leaving this office. Will you come to my team and work for me? And I, my jaw hit the ground and I was like, but I'm supposed to focus on the Indo-Pacific and I'm, but Ukraine, like I can't say no to that. And so I, I, I walked out and she said, just think about it. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Um, and I, I rode my bike to and from the Pentagon. And so I spent the next you know, 35 minutes on my bike pedaling faster than I ever had and really just thinking through my brain, can I do this? Like she wants me to work on her team. And her team was the civilian group of about 30 civilians and some military members that their job was to coordinate all of the security assistance. Everything that you heard you know, that's been announced on you know, TV, that the, the, when the president goes up there and says, we're giving this many shells and these high Mars and all these things, it was her job to do the coordination across the entirety of the Department of Defense. So joint staff, civilian side, and then even across to the civilian side of the National Security Council, work with the State Department and figure out what are the things that we can give Ukraine? What's the highest priorities? Um, and work with the ambassador. The ambassador literally came into our office, um, got to meet Ms. Markova. Um, the, we were, she was doing the highest level, most amazing stuff. And she said, I want you on my team. Do the answer was yes, right? And so <laughs> I came back in the next day. I'm like, yes, Laura, I absolutely will be on your team. What can I do for you? And so I sat down with her and she basically said, our team is doing amazing work, but we are, we are disorganized. We are out of balance. We don't have enough manning. We don't have the manning in the right part, but I have to be the, the face. I have to be the one on the screen in the VTCs. I have to be the one talking to the senior leaders. I have to be the one talking to the ambassador. I have to be the one talking to, no kidding, she, she was one of the ones that went to Ukraine the very first time. She had to be the face and she said, but I can't lead the team. Because I have to do that role, I need somebody else to step in and be a leader. Um, and I just need you to, to be that. And so I'm, she hired me to be the chief of staff, which is basically to run the office. It was run the schedule, it was run the meetings, it was coordinate for 
who all needs to be where, but the other thing is the team was hugely imbalanced. You have people doing way too much work and some other people not doing near enough work. And when you have as much work as you had, we're no kidding, we're putting together Ukraine security assistance initiative packages that are working with industry partners to be able to buy the right things on behalf of Ukraine and provide it to them. Working with the joint staff and working with the services to figure out, hey, can we provide triple sevens? Can we provide these, um, you know, these UAVs, etc. Working with industry partners as they came up with literally novel, um, novel weapons to be able to provide to Ukraine and going through and doing all of that, um, that coordination. We had people doing all those different things, trying to. We stood up the um, security cooperation group, the one that that meets with all of the heads of the departments of all of our partners and allies in NATO. And they would make contributions to decide what can we give to Ukraine. Um, and, but, but this person was doing all this work and this person was just doing a much smaller portfolio. It was imbalanced. They weren't talking to each other. And so what I had to do is I did what every good leader did. I stepped in the first day and I listened. I had to get, I had to, get to know the people. I had to understand where were those imbalances. What were you working on? Do you understand the priorities? How are we cross-talking with one another? How are we feeding the right information to Laura Cooper, who's the face of this thing, so that she has all the information that she needs to represent the department well? How do we inform the secretary so that he understands what he's sitting there and having those conversations with other senior leaders from other nations? Um, and it, it was a huge challenge to be able to say, okay, I need you all to trust me and buy in because we need to make some changes. And, and how do you get that buy-in? You get that buy-in by listening first. And so I, I went and I listened and I got to know the people. I sat down with each and every single person on the team, it was about 30 people, and learned what are your skills? What are the things you're good at? What are the things you're bad at? What are the things you're doing? What are the things that you think you should be doing but you can't get to because it, it's below your cut line? And figure out what were our priorities and then rebalance our manpower and, and literally hire in new manpower to fill the gaps. Um, and then, after I had done that, and we kind of rebalanced the whole team so that we were able to you know, do the coordination we need, rebalance the schedule so that our interaction with the rest of the department was, uh, was, was organized and coordinated so everybody knew, here's the meeting I gotta be at and here's what we're gonna be talking about in that meeting and here's the decisions that we have to make in that meeting. And everything obviously is both important and urgent. So it's everything, there is very much a sense of urgency and the, the hours that everyone was working was just I mean, ridiculous, trying to get these things done. We're talking the first few days of the war. Um, so I listened, I got buy-in, I got people to you know, rebalance and, and accept change. And then what I found, the most important role that I played from that point forward was speaking value into each and every individual on that team because they were working their butts off. And, and that's something that today, I gotta tell you, like one of the things as a leader, sitting in, I own 500, tactical air control party, and combat weather airmen all the way across the Indo-Pacific. That we are oriented on the pacing challenge and we are trying to figure out how do we evolve for large-scale combat operations to deter and if necessary, defend. And one of the things that I know as the leader that my primary role is, is to speak value into each and every one of those airmen so they understand how, do, how does my contribution fit into the whole? How does what I do matter to whether or not we will succeed or fail as the joint force? That experience, working at the highest level of the department, trying to figure out what do I do as a leader, really molded me to understand the value of people and to understand that we have to always put our people first because the people do the mission. And if the people don't feel valued, they walk away. If the people don't feel valued, we can't meet recruiting goals. 
If the people don't feel valued, then admissions here is going to go through the floor. But if our people know that they are critical contributors, we can't meet the threat. We can't fulfill the national defense strategy. We can't succeed without your contribution. And it doesn't matter whether you're flying the A-10 or whether you're the maintainer that's getting it off the ground or whether you're the personnelist that's doing the paperwork to make sure that their performance report looks good. That we need the contribution of each and every one of those airmen. And if they understand how they fit into the whole, then they're gonna give you their blood, sweat, and tears. And that to me was a, just a formative time in understanding what a good leader is. That's amazing, sir. Hearing, hearing you, you speak about that makes me think about a lot of people we've had on who, who talk about empathetic leadership and how mm-hmm. you need to have that, that people-first approach. And it sounds like you gave us definitely a couple of attributes there, um, listening, empathy, having you know understanding, and, and then also appreciation for, for what your people do. Is there a time when, when you felt that having empathy was, was difficult while also having accountability? Because it, it seems like when you came into a team that maybe people weren't pulling their weight, it's, it's hard to have that accountability but also appreciate them as a person and take that people-first approach. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a story that it's actually much more personal. Um, so, and I've, I've stood up in front of, I just stood up in front of my squatter and talked about this, um, that one of the attributes that I try to exude as a leader is love of my people. And I use the word love very deliberately because I want them to know that there are attributes of love that is hard, right? Like, and the, and the, the example I'll give is how I'm a father. Right? Like my, my kids, I've got three sons. Jack's my oldest, but it's, it applies to all three of them. I want them to succeed wherever they want to succeed. But in order to do that, I have to set high standards for them and then I have to hold them to it. And so that means when I punish them, when I correct behavior, when they're do something, doing something wrong, because I love them, they know it's because I have their best interest in mind. The same thing is absolutely true in leadership that I stood up in front of my squadron and I said, you're my family. Like you are, you, I didn't get to, you know, I didn't get to choose my kids, right? I didn't get to choose the squadron I commanded either, but I stepped into that role and I said, man, I love you. And what I mean by that is I want what is best for you. And what is best for you sometimes is for you to understand what right is and what wrong is. And you need to know that you will be held to a standard that says, here is what right is. And specifically, the example I'll use, I had a, I had a young airman. Um, actually, he wasn't that young. That was the sad part. He was an NCO. Um, and for whatever reason, um, he had gotten into some trouble downtown. Um, and he, none of it was on base. None of it was, was confirmed. And then eventually, he was charged with something downtown and then dropped. So I believe in innocent until proven guilty. And he had been withheld his promotion because he was going through this legal process downtown. Fully on the rights of my predecessor, he had made the decisions, et cetera. But I had this airman that had, had he gotten in trouble? Well, the reality is, is no, he hadn't. Um, and so I was able to go in and look and see the situation and, and, and have empathy and compassion with him and say, hey, you went through this, your promotion was delayed, and now that is now removed and you're gonna go ahead and get promoted because you were not found guilty and I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt. The most difficult part was when one year later, he 
decided to do something that was epically horrible in our career field. He controlled aircraft when he was not qualified to do so. That's an absolute safety violation. It is calling in weapons effects, having bombs and bullets come out of the gun of an aircraft when you are not qualified to say cleared out. And then when confronted on it, he lied about it. You make a mistake, you screw something up, that's one thing. But you try to cover it up, you have an integrity breach, that's a whole nother one. Well, because a year earlier, I had had empathy and compassion on that person. I had, I had earned his respect. And I had, he knew that I loved him, that I wanted the best for him. And I had said to him, I am so proud that I get to promote you. That, that this thing that you were accused of, that you were, nothing was proven, um, that I was able to say, hey, no, clean slate. You get to start from scratch. But then a year later, when he gets in trouble, I can look him in the eye and I can say to him, I want you to know that it is my goal in dispensing this punishment that I want to correct your behavior. I want you to understand the full weight of the breach of integrity that you have had. And I want you to, I want you to have that come to Jesus moment because I actually want you to succeed in life. But that's gonna be outside the Air Force. It is absolutely my desire to remove you from the Air Force because the Air Force and breaches of integrity are absolutely incompatible with each other. And I think that that airman understood that I didn't do it out of malice. I didn't do it because I was angry or that I, I wanted the worst for him, but that I wanted the best for him. But in order for him to, to realize the weight and the ramifications of his actions and for him to realize the consequences, he needed to feel the full weight of those consequences. And so that's what I did. I threw the book at him as much as I possibly could. And I absolutely strove to get him out of the Air Force. I gave up command before the act was actually completed, so my successor ended up completing the punishment. Um, but I think that through that initial empathy and that initial compassion and earning his trust, I think he understood that he had absolutely screwed it up, but I wasn't doing it because I had malice towards him. Just like my kids that I wanna see succeed and I wanna correct their behavior. And sometimes that means it's gonna be hard and it's gonna be ugly. But the reality is I want you to learn and I want you to grow from it. And that sometimes happens inside the Air Force and we can fix behavior and we can allow people to stay in the Air Force. I don't believe in a one mistake Air Force. I've made my fair share of mistakes. Um, but sometimes it's just incompatible. Criminal behavior, integrity breaches, kind of incompatible with, with the Air Force. But I still want you to learn. And I still want you to succeed. Maybe not with this uniform on though. So that was a hard one. That was like, you want to talk about something that pulls in your heartstrings and just makes it hurt? Man, I wanted that kid to succeed. And when he did something epically wrong, it just broke my heart. We've talked a lot about integrity today, mm. kind of in that story and throughout. And I think we all know that integrity is the foundation of what we do in our Air Force. But what we don't talk about as much is how hard it is to uphold yeah. integrity. So can you tell us about a time that maybe your integrity was tested? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and this is going to come with an epic failure. Um, and I think we learn a lot more from failures than successes. So um, another story time. So there I was in uh, a little place called Kufa, Iraq. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background so you understand how the heck I got there. So I graduated from pilot training. I got uh, qualified in the A-10, fully combat mission ready in the A-10. And back then we had a program. It was called the BALO program, Battalion Air Liaison Officer Program where we would deliberately overman our A-10 squadrons so that in times of 
um, or contingencies that we would take some of those A-10 pilots out of the cockpit and we would align them with army units and put them on the ground to integrate um, air-to-ground fires into the ground scheme of maneuver. And we needed a few officers to be able to do that. Um, in uh, 2003, right, as um, we were making a decision as to whether or not we were going to um, push into Iraq, um, I was informed by my flight commander that I was going to be the first person out the door in support of that program. So I was taken out of the cockpit and I was sent with 3rd Infantry Division, uh, uh, 269 Armor Task Force uh, out of Fort Benning, Georgia. And so I was, well, my squadron took their A-10s and they deployed over to the Middle East to support it from the air. I was sent on the ground. And so I was the Joint Terminal Attack Controller embedded with an Army unit. If you know anything about what happened in that war, 3rd Infantry Division was the Army unit that was on the absolute front lines. Um, I was in one of the primary um, combat units of that division. Um, and so we fought our first battle. We breached the berm and pushed into Iraq on March 20th, 2003, probably before either of you were born. Um, <laughs> and, we, uh, and, and that was when I got my first taste of combat. So multiple battles fought. Um, the story I'm going to tell you is a few days into that. Um, so we had the previous day, we had had a huge sandstorm. It's called a shamal. Um, and if you can picture the surface of Mars, that's what it looked like. It was red blowing sand, no visibility whatsoever. And we had fought all the way through the night. Um, as the Joint Terminal Track Controller, it is my job to get aircraft overhead to support that ground maneuver and integrate it, in, integrate it into our scheme of maneuver. And when you have a huge sandstorm that goes up to 50,000 feet and you call back and say, I need aircraft, the answer is there is none over the entire country. So it was me and my rifle. So um, to explain kind of my specific situation, I was in the back of an armored personnel carrier. We had a driver, we had a gunner, and then in the back kind of open, um, it's, a, it's, it's called an M113, armored personnel carrier with tracks on the side. Kind of looks like a tank, but it just has a 50 cal on top. And then in the back, they have a large hatch that opened up. And I, the fire, the fire support officer, and me stood back to back with M4s where he covered the left side and I covered the right side. That was our field of fire that we covered. Normally, it was me focusing primarily on talking on the radio to aircraft and very little focused on my rifle. Um, that day, I was focused very much on my rifle. Um, we fought all the way through the night. Um, we were basically, we were trying to link up with another unit that had taken a few casualties. Um, and so we were moving very, very slowly because of the lack of visibility. Um, we got all the way to that link up um, and it took probably a good 12 plus hours. So suffice it to say, working all through the night. Um, finally get linked up with them, the fight kind of starts to settle down and, um, and the weather starts to clear. Um, over the course of the next couple hours, weather continues to clear um, and we start to send out patrols. Um, small groups of people to just kind of push back and to kind of probe to make sure how close is the enemy. We've just been fighting with them. We believe that they've pulled back a, a significant ways. Um, they've been primarily fighting with small arms, RPGs, some indirect fire, um, but not, we weren't getting like tank fire or anything like that. So we felt like, okay, we feel relatively safe. We've pushed them back. Um, I was effectively no help whatsoever because there's no airplanes there. Um, but now the air is starting to clear up. 
and so I get on the what's called the JARN Joint Air Request Network um, and requested aircraft, and I got the very first aircraft into the um, AOR over the uh, over Iraq. Um, as it starts to clear up, the um, uh, our, our um, small patrols are coming back, and they keep coming back because they keep getting shot at. As soon as they push out just a little bit, they, they start taking contact, and we realize the enemy isn't that far away. Um, so what they do is, as they come back, simultaneous to that, the brigade commander, so this is an 06, my normal boss was an 05 battalion commander, um, but the brigade commander shows up to check on us. Um, I have a B-52 show up overhead, and we are arrayed roughly um, looking south to north, and we've got multiple patrols that are pushing out north. They've come back, and they basically say, hey, JTAC, I have um, coordinates for where we believe they are massing in this brick factory. Um, large industrial kind of area, looks very rugged. Uh, it's gonna take a lot to blow this thing up. We have taken, we send another patrol out. Sure enough, they take enough fire. We really confirm there is a lot of enemy in there. Um, I've got a B-52 overhead and the brigade commander basically says, hey, JTAC, I want you to take that thing out. So I call up the B-52, do check-in. Basically when they do that, they give you their SEL, standard conventional load. Here is the weapons that I have on board. When he reads out the weapons that he have on, has on board, they're all dumb bombs. Um, I know that in today's day and age, that seems strange. But back then, we didn't have that many JDAMs. Like, we didn't have that many laser-guided bombs. We didn't have that many um, GPS-guided bombs. Most bombs were dumb bombs. Um, so I, I go back to that brigade commander and I say, sir, I understand. Um, we're gonna have to wait. I, I don't have an aircraft that, that has the right weaponry to take that out because what do you have? I said, sir, I've got a B-52. Um, that brigade commander, I'm not gonna give you his name, um, felt like he knew better than I did. And he said, I know what B-52s can do and I want you to take that thing out. I said, sir, he's got dumb bombs on board. Um, I'm, I have, I'm afraid that from 39,000 feet um, that he's gonna miss. Um, and he put his finger in my chest and he said, you call on that B-52 and you say cleared hot. I want those bombs on the ground. And I'm a lieutenant. This is, I've been out of the academy for a very short period of time. I'm, I'm young. I, I mean, you can see the pictures of me, I look young. Um, I knew in my heart of hearts that that was a wrong decision. I knew in my heart of hearts that the answer to that colonel was no, sir. And I didn't have the guts to say it. And so I said, yes, sir. And so I, I did the best that I possibly could. So I gave him the coordinates of the four corners of it. It was a very large complex. I tried to co uh, coordinate to get the correct run-in so that they would have the best ability. I tested the winds to see, and the winds were really light. So I thought, maybe, maybe we're not gonna miss here. Gave the nine line, sent him out to an IP. You called um, in from the south. If you can kind of picture with me what I'm looking at is I'm looking roughly north. He's coming kind of over my right shoulder from about southeast to northwest. Um, I'm looking north along a road. Um, on the right side of that road is this very large brick factory. Um, it has got you know multiple smokestacks sticking out of the top of it. Across the street from it is basically what looks like um, kind of a, a, a rocky, but a, 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 a line of houses, basically. He calls in, and my response is cleared hot. 
brick factory, road, houses. Every single one of those bombs, 60 something of them, landed in the backyard of those houses. Missed bigger than Dallas. And all I could think was, what, who did I just kill? What did I just do? And I, I was angry with myself. I was disappointed because I didn't have the guts to stand up for it. And the, the brigade commander that was sitting in there just looked at me with disgust like it was my fault and just walked away. Didn't do anything about it. He didn't really care. We sent another patrol north shortly after that. Every single person, all that one of the houses, walked out bleeding from the ears. I basically deafened them all, but I hadn't killed anybody. That, to me, was just a little glimpse of happiness because I knew that the consequences for my bad decision was not life or death. It didn't make me feel any better about the bad decision that I'd made. It's the, probably the only decision in my life that I would genuinely go back and change what I did. But after that, with that brigade commander gone, I went to my battalion commander and I said, sir, can I do this right? Do you have the patience to sit still and do this right? And he, he, he didn't really like me. We didn't really get along. Um, he had been in a fratricide incident in the first Gulf War, and so he was kind of scared of the Air Force. And so his response was to keep me really close to him. And so I was, every, wherever we went on the ground, I was always right off his right, right hip. His tank went, my 113 went right there with him, everywhere we went. Um, and I still hadn't earned his respect. And I said, sir, I want to do this the right way. And he said, okay, we will sit still until you tell me that you've taken care of this. And so I called in and I said, I need the next set of A-10s that show up in this country. And they said, it's going to be a little off. I said, that's fine. I need the next set of A-10s that are going to show up in this country. I said, okay, they'll be yours. It was, it was a while later, but they checked in with me. Two A-10s from the Michigan Air National Guard. Um, and I talked them on and they were visually acquired that brick factory and they rolled in over and over and over again and they went home Winchester, which means they dropped every single bomb, they shot every single Maverick, every single rocket. I watched a seven second burst of 30 millimeter A-10 cannon wreak havoc. I watched a bomb shack one of those smokestacks and knock it over. And my entire battalion sat there right next to me, watching with me, cheering, right? Like watching A-10s wreak havoc is one of the coolest things to watch on the planet, right? And I'm just sitting there like, this is the right thing. Let me tell you, as soon as they checked off, we did another patrol. We, nobody shot at us ever again from that location. And, and every single person from that moment on said, I want you engaged in everything that we're doing because you can bring some serious firepower to us. And that earned me a lot of respect. It didn't, it didn't wash away the bad decision that I made. It didn't wash away. I still have to live with regret of the fact that I made a bad decision that I, I didn't have the guts to stand up to an 06. But I got a little bit of redemption to know that I got to prove, one, that an A-10 is an awesome aircraft, and it absolutely is, but two, that I could bring meaningful combat power that could really help my battalion succeed or fail. Thank you for sharing that with us, sir. That was a really powerful story. You're welcome. It's, uh, I, I, I mentioned this when we, we talked beforehand, but I, one of the things I've had to deal with in my career is dealing with combat trauma. Um, the consequences for me 
of going to war in Iraq was um, images and experiences and smells that I didn't expect. I had trained my whole life, right? Like, all I wanted to do at the academy was go be a pilot. And then when I went to pilot training, all I wanted to do was go fly the A-10. And when you do that and you go through all, you know, pilot training, um, MQT, um, fully combat mission ready pilot, we're supposed to look like a video game. It's supposed to look like your HUD, right? It's supposed to look like your, your visual displays. But then I got pulled out of that environment and put on the ground with the army and I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready to deal with those dilemmas. I wasn't ready to see war at that distance. I wasn't ready to deal with the fact that I had to open fire and the, the, the reason I live today is because I'm better at shooting an M4 than a couple of Iraqis are at shooting AK-47s because they were pointed at my head and I was pointed at theirs. Um, and I've had to come back and deal with that and, and going through that experience that I really was unprepared for. Um, and so as a result, um, I'm pretty passionate about how we um, deal with combat trauma, how we take care of our airmen in that realm as well, and how we build our resiliency so that when we ask people to go to war, that they're ready for it, because I certainly wasn't. Thank you for sharing that, sir. I, like, I really appreciate your candor and, and being able to be open with us about that, and I, I think that that's something um, that we've definitely seen even at the academy like perspectives on mental health treatment and how that's changed and i would venture to guess throughout your career you you have too so I'm, I'm hoping we're moving in the right direction with some of that i think we absolutely are and it's it's been really encouraging for me to see um and one of the reasons that i'm able to to share that and one of the reasons that i want to share that transparently and openly and to be willing to say hey, as an 06, like, I, I, had to, I went through some stuff, and it, it was kind of ugly, and I had kind of a temper about it, and I had, to, I had to go get some help. I needed to get some professional help. For me, it, it was a chaplain that I just got to spend some time with talking. Um, but then the most rewarding and the most meaningful and helpful thing, what I found was, is sharing my story so that I could say to others, you're not alone. Um, because I think there's a lot of people... Um, particularly um, senior NCOs, officers that have been through um, some real serious situations um, that are not necessarily dealing with the trauma that they've been through. And the reality of it is that everybody's been through trauma. Don't kid yourself, you've been through trauma. We, life is full of trauma. It can be combat trauma or it can be any kind of trauma. And we need to be willing and able to know when it's time to take a knee and say, I need to go get some help. And we need to be ready as an Air Force and ready as leaders to be able to support our airmen when it's time for them to take a knee so that we can help them, so that we can provide that care they need, and then get them back into the fight. Because if we do that, if we do a good job of taking care of our airmen, um, that we, and we prove to them that there's not a stigma attached to this, and there's not long-term ramifications that this is going to take you out of the fight forever. It's just going to take you and allow you to take a knee for a period of time, and then we'll get you back into the fight. I definitely feel like that happened for me. I had some, some leaders that, that had my back and allowed me, when it was time, to take a knee and to be able to build my resiliency. Um, because one, one of the things that I know, and, and kind of applying it all the way forward in my life, is that, um, you, you know, I entered the Air Force Academy in 1995, right? Nobody had really heard about this place called Kosovo. Ukraine definitely wasn't a thing. 
You know, um, we hadn't, Afghanistan was not on our mind at all. We were in Iraq because of Southern Watch. And the thing that I've learned is that whatever our next fight is, is probably not the one we're preparing for and not the one we're thinking of. And so what that means to me as a leader today is that I have to invest in my people right now because we're, it's post-global war on terror. We're not at war right now. Ukraine's at war, we're supporting Ukraine, but we're not at war right now. And so that gives me the time to be able to invest in my people and to grow their resiliency, to grow. I mean, I really believe in the four pillars of resiliency, right? Like spiritual, mental, social, physical. Like I have time as a leader to say to you, you need to do PT. You need to spend your time building your physical fitness because I'm gonna call on you to go to war and I don't know if there's gonna be a gym when I do that. I need you to build your social pillar so that you've got a community around you so that if life takes you out at the knees, you've got people to rally around you and pick you back up. I need you to build your mental fitness to, so that you're challenging yourself to always want to better yourself. I want you to build your spiritual fitness so you know why you do this, so you know your purpose, so that when life takes you out of the knees, you don't say, why me? You say, I'm gonna get back after this because I know why I'm here, I know why I serve, I know why I'm on this planet. And if we, we have to spend that time now building that resilience, building the readiness so that when I call on you for that war that I can't predict and I don't know where it's gonna be, that you're ready to go. And I gotta tell you, looking back at my life, I've had one really, really bad example that I just talked about of where I really wasn't ready. And I had one really, really good example of when I was. And I wanna tell you another story um, because I'm passionate about this. Um, summer of 2000, uh, 2020, I had brain surgery. Not something I expected to do. Um, but I had this incredibly rare condition that started to take out my vestibular system. And so I had this weird um, connection between my voice and my vestibular system. It manifested itself one day, the most obviously, when I was coaching my kid's soccer team and I yelled across the field to tell them to do something. And I almost knocked myself over with my own voice. Like literally, all of a sudden I didn't know which way up was and I almost fell over. I was just jogging across the field and I shouted at my kid, almost fell over. Um, went to the doctor, took like a full year to get a diagnosis to figure out what the heck was wrong with me. I was hearing, it's called superior canal dehiscence syndrome. Um, and you hear your own voice echo inside your head, your heartbeat echo inside your own head and your voice causes vestibular inputs. Um, the only way to fix it is to cut about a two and a half inch and by two and a half inch hole in the side of your head, out of your skull, to go in to pick up your brain and then to plug your semicircular canal from the top. Because what's happening is, is there's an extra hole in there that's not supposed to be there. Um, what that meant was, in order for them, when they did that surgery, so I had to relearn how to walk because I didn't know which way up was anymore. Because they take, you got six gyros in your head, six semicircular canals, and effectively they went in and they deliberately broke one of them. But the body's freaking amazing. And so it reteaches you how to, which way up is, how to use the other five to know what balance is. And so I had to relearn how to balance. It took about two months to learn how to walk for the second time in my life. Not, not a skill that I think everybody has to do. To um, but, but the reason I tell that story, I mean, obviously it, that process of going through surgery, just the, you know, the scared is whether or not I'm ever gonna get back to pilot status, whether I'm ever gonna be deployable again, whether I'm gonna recover from this thing, was an arduous and painful process. But because I knew my purpose in life, I knew, man, I'm okay, I'm gonna get through this. 
because I had built my social pillar and I had people that rallied around me and whether it was, you know, it was my church or whether it was my, you know, my, my coworkers or whether it was just my friends or even my family, that they were going to pick me up and they were going to take care of me. I was, at the time, I had just barely started that job as the MA to the Undersecretary for Policy. And I had to go in there and say, hey, I know I just started here, but I'm going to need to take a few months off. And I had a, 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 a colleague from the Army delay his retirement and stay on doing that job. And he just said, no, you take your months. And when you come back, I'll retire. I'll cover down for you. You want to talk about like community rallying around you? Um, I had built my physical fitness because I got to tell you, like you, when you're recovering from brain surgery and when you relearn how to walk, you, you don't, you're not staying in very good shape. And so I had built up those pillars and I built my resiliency so that when life took me out of the knees, I had that community around me, I had the physical fitness and I was ready and I could, res and I could respond and rebound from that. Um, and I gotta tell you, um, it took me 12 months, but I, it took me about two months to relearn to walk. Um, then I got to go to the National Intrepid Center of Excellence and at Walter Reed, which is like the best people in the universe that deal with TBI and basically teach you how to rebalance. Um, had an amazing vestibular therapist um, and she walked me through day by day um, and it took me 12 full months to get back to basically the, the standard they had to set for me was like an elite athlete standard. So I had to be as good as anybody on any NFL team when it came to balance. And it took me 12 months to get there. And then my doctor recommended that I be returned to flight status. And so after a really long time, my waiver went up to the powers that be at Wright-Patterson and I got requalified to fly an airplane. Um, and I gotta tell you that, that story I feel like being able to stand up in front of a group as a leader and say, hey, I believe in this, I live this, and I try to exemplify this, um, for me gives me such um, a, a just a platform to be able to be a spokesman and to be the one that is able to get people to believe you. Because a lot of times, right, like you get told, oh, you need to do this. You need to invest in your, your physical fitness. Oh, you need resiliency. It's this really important thing, right? But you don't, you don't know necessarily how to apply it. You don't see a lot of examples of, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, it gives me the opportunity to stand up in front of them and say, and say, no, I need you to go to PT. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why me being in great physical shape really mattered for me to be able to bounce back. Why me having a social community around me allowed me to bounce back. Why me investing in knowing my purpose in life, my why of you know wanting to invest in the next generation, wanting to lead a formation and invest in a career field that I got pulled out of a cockpit uh, into. Why I get to be you know part of God's big plan in this universe and know I'm so, I'm part of something much bigger than myself. Um, invest in all of those pillars and say I did it. You need to do it too. And I want to give you the time, the space, and the opportunity to build that yourself because I want resilient airmen. That's incredible, sir. I think it, it also speaks to the fact that what you talked about earlier about loving your people. Yeah. And I think that when you have leaders who not only show say that they care, but show that they care Absolutely. is incredibly important. And like you said, you have the, the background knowledge and the experiences to back it up to prove that that this works and there's a reason why one of the things they say like and they tell you this right like when you become a leader in the Air Force they say hey you're living in a glass house um, one of the things I say is embrace the glass house like as a leader all your your NCOs all your airmen everybody's looking to you and your example and you're gonna say a lot of things but 
they're going to listen to your actions a lot more than they listen to your words. And so one of the things that I've done as a leader is say, I'm going to embrace the glass house. I absolutely want you to watch my example. And I want you, I want to be above reproach so that you know if you follow my example, you know what right looks like. With that, sir, to end us off, we have some rapid fire questions. Okay, I'm ready. What is your favorite base? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, I love Colorado Springs, but I got to tell you, um, my favorite assignment was Budapest, Hungary. Um, that I was an Olmsted scholar there, and I absolutely loved it. But my favorite base experience, it's, it's, it's strange. It's Joint Force Command Brunson. That was that NATO assignment that I have. It was in the Netherlands. But it was this small base, um, and the community was so tight-knit. And we've got a bunch of them around the Air Force of these small bases where you get this community. They happen in Korea. They happen in Europe some places. They even happen in some, some unique places in the United States as well with like small cities and stuff. But that small community, Joint Force Command brought some. I loved it. What is your favorite airframe? The A-10. <laughs> Are you kidding me? And finally, any parting shots for the cadet wing? Yes. I'm going to give you parting shots. And this will be maybe a little bit longer than a quick fire question, but just give me a second. I've, got, I've, I've, I've sat down a couple times with lieutenants, and I've said, here's what I want out of a lieutenant. And really, the truth is, it's the same thing that I want out of cadets. And it's, it's three pictures. Um, the first picture is, is of a lion cub. Um, and, and what I want from that lion cub is I want somebody that's going to enter this Air Force and they're willing to take risk. They're willing to get after it. They're willing to do stupid things and try really hard and work really hard and do things like lion cubs do. That the, the mama lion needs to come along and correct them and bring them back. And, but they, they get into trouble and they, they try out new things and they, they do things that are way above their head. And that's what I want out of my lieutenants and that's what I want out of my cadets as well. I want you to be willing to try new things. I want you to be willing to get after the mission. I want you to be willing to take some risk and maybe make a couple mistakes along the way. And I want to be a strong enough leader to know I got your back even when you make those mistakes. The second picture is a picture of a cheerleader. And that cheerleader, because what I want out of that lieutenant is somebody that loves where they're at. I want them to be so proud of their unit, just like you are, like, wear the swag from USAFA. You know, root for your football team, root for your sports teams, be the biggest fan of where you're at. And when you get to your first squadron, be the biggest fan of that squadron. Buy the swag, buy into the mission. Get all about it. Why? Because when it's effective, and really, particularly uh, when when a young lieutenant shows up to a squadron and they really want to be there, that that attitude, and that culture just grows and it spreads. Because you, if you want to be there, other people want to be there as well. And so, be the cheerleader. The third picture is that same line cup, but with mama, and that is know and get and find your mentors. One of the things that I absolutely love about the cadet wing and how we've made smart decisions is bringing in senior NCOs and NCOs to mentor cadets. It doesn't change when you become a lieutenant. Yeah, sure enough, you're gonna, you're gonna graduate, you're gonna put that bar on, and all of a sudden, magically, you're gonna outrank that NCO and that senior NCO. But they're still the mama lion, and you're still the cub. Because they have the experience that you don't have. And so, take advantage of those enlisted personnel that are in your squadrons, that are over in those buildings, because they have the experience and the time in this Air Force and respect it and, and learn from it and spend time finding those good mentors. You can find the officers as well, and you'll have the opportunity for that as well. But the thing that I really value is that senior NCO and that NCO mentorship. So take advantage of it now, and once you become a lieutenant, take it even more advantage of it then. That's my parting shot. There we have it, Colonel Bloker. Thank you for being on the show. You're welcome.